her, something all of a sudden clicked in her heart and in her mind. And she realized letting God be the leader of her life was a very good idea. So boys and girls, please keep sharing your Jesus story. Please keep sharing with people you love who haven't let Jesus love them back yet because someday they may hear his voice and follow him. Have a wonderful week and I look forward to talking with you again. As Michael Schilling, who does a great job uh, on our soundboard, was helping me put my uh, mask on, not my mask on, excuse me, the microphone on, I realized, boy, God knew what he was doing when he made ears. I thought it was just for hearing, but man, I have all sorts of things hanging from my ears these days, you know, besides the mask that I took off, the uh, sound, my glasses, oh, got to get my glasses on now so they don't fog up, but. Good thing for ears. God, thank you for my ears. Uh, um, Debbie, undoubtedly, that was uh, gracious of her to make that production. Her father passed away, Don Fischel, and he is our uh, candy man of the church congregation. There's some traditions churches have to maintain. There always seems to be one person in a congregation that likes to dole out candy to kids. And for some reason, he must have thought I was a kid, so I was often the recipient of it. But our hearts are heavy with you, Debbie. Um, um, what a humble man. But let me lead us in prayer, and then let's get to our scripture this morning. Father, we do thank you um, that we are here because of folks who have gone before us. We owe a great, a great deal of gratitude to folks who've sacrificed beyond what we could even comprehend. So just uh, um, may you uh, support our family and children's minister this morning, Lord, this day, uh, Joanne as well. And Lord God, uh, we build upon the patriots of the Old Testament that you want us to learn from them. So this morning from Rahab. May we wrestle out of it uh, nuggets of gold that apply to our hearts even today. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, most all of you know, it's no secret that we had a little conflict. No, we had a conflict. I first said little. We had a conflict here at the church between the church and school leadership. And I know as time has gone, some people ask me, and sometimes I ask, can anything good come out of it? Many know that we've been working on resolving this conflict between the church and school leadership. We recognize that we needed help, and so we have brought in Crossroads Resolution Group, and they're helping us work towards reconciliation and then mediation to help resolve what the differences are. And you can read about all of this, and I encourage you to go to our website and the blog page and read the update that was posted just a couple of weeks ago, because there's a part there that you can engage with, that you can help and be a part of bringing about rec reconciliation. 
My answer to the question, can anything good come from it, is absolutely yes. Yes, I can already testify that there is some good that has come to me as a result of it. That does not mean, when I say that, that does not mean that I want conflict, I wish it had not happened, nor does it mean I'm excusing it or justifying it. But Scripture does tell us, have realistic expectations. It tells us in James that when trials come, not if they come, when they come, the realistic expectation is don't be surprised when trials come because they are going to come for a specific purpose. That you would use those, that you would harness them, that you would seize them to bring about a maturing and that you would become complete in Jesus Christ. Today we're focused and we're looking at the faith of Rahab. You know, amazingly, several things converged all at one time. And one was this text that weeks ago, Pastor Derek asked me to preach on this Sunday. And little did I know that God was going to use this text and this person, Rahab, to open my understanding, my part in the conflict here at the church. Sometimes our part in the conflict does not cause it but unknowingly it contributes to it. Now we may not be overt about our judgments regarding people, but the attitudes of our heart, even if we're not privy or part of the initial conflict, but the attitudes of our heart have a way of bleeding out and impacting a family. Perhaps today, Today's text will convict you of your part. Maybe not in the conflict that we're working through and we are moving towards uh, um, some resolution. Maybe not in regard to that conflict, but other conflicts that you didn't go looking for, but they came to you. Maybe at home, work, with friends or neighbors or society at large. Let me share with you what God has revealed to me through Rahab, in case it helps you. Hebrews 11.31 is where we have the, by faith, we're through this series at summer, by faith, looking at all these uh, um, folks that are lifted up, brought to our attention because of their expression of faith and how God used them. And today, uh, Hebrews 11.31 tells us, By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed spies, was not killed for those who were dis disobedient. With those who were disobedient. But we're going to spend the time, the rest of the story, really what Debbie kind of portrayed there with the cartoonish characters from Joshua 2. So turn in your Bibles to Joshua 2. Turn there to Joshua 2. Verse 1, then Joshua, the son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they stayed there. 
See, now Moses had died, the leader that brought them out of Exodus. Remember when they were standing there, he was sending in 12 spies. Forty years before what we're reading about in Joshua 2. They didn't have the courage to go in and take the land. So they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And now that generation died off. And now the mantle of leadership, Moses passes away. But before he does, um, Moses bestows the mantle of leadership upon Joshua. And so Joshua sends in two spies, we read about in our text in Joshua. Now think about this with me. Think about this. If God directed Joshua to send in the spies, and I say if God, it's clear with Moses in the initial account 40 years before God said send the spies. We don't read it as specifically here, but if God indeed was the one that uh, directed Joshua to send in the spies, why? Why would he send in uh, spies if their whole strategy and tactic of taking the city in broad daylight to march around the city seven times, seven days, one time each day. What kind of uh, espionage, kind of uh, covert uh, operation, information do you need to derive to execute that kind of strategy? And then you're going to, on that seventh day, at the end, you're going to blow your trumpet and shout. Well, let's wait. We're going to answer that later. We'll answer that question later. Uh, but verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house. Because they have come to spy out the whole land. They chose Rahab's house. Now, probably, one, you know, it had an outside wall. So, as we see, that was strategic because of the exit that they have to make. So, that was uh, uh, an advantage. But also, um, the world of the prostitution, it may have certainly provided places of lodging and a larger crowd. This was a place that merchants and customers, whether they are looking for any kind of sexual or pleasurable satisfaction or just to get lost in a crowd. You know, it made me think of the saloons in the Old West. How when you first come into town, you have that gathering place. Because these were walled, fortified cities, at least Jericho. And this provided a place for travelers to come. And so they probably thought, well... Let's go there. We might get lost in the crowd. If need be, we can have a fast exit. But you know, they weren't very good spies. They need to go back and take Spy 101 class again. Uh, they were spotted the first night. It became obvious. There's spies here. And so we read then in verses 4 to 7. Look there at 4 through 7. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I do not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof 
and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Rahab lied. Rahab lied to protect these two spies. She lied. This was her first expression of faith, and her first expression of faith was a lie. She was doing it because of her belief that these two are agents from this God. And she lied to protect them. Many great theologians over years have debated whether this was okay or not. Is it ever okay to lie for a righteous purpose? Some theologians will talk about a dutiful lie. I think we all grapple with this because we can play this uh, what if, you know, if, if in line I could protect my family from tragedy or death, would I? God, in that case, would it be okay? We could play that game. Others will say it's never okay. It wasn't okay for Rahab to lie. God could have saved him in other ways. God is a God of truth and would never condone lying. This is a good study for a different day. A study we might take up in Christian ethics. But rather than spend our time, which maybe we'd like to do, because it just seems to me as a society, we like to debate on those things we really don't know for certain, and spend a lot of time and energy on those things, and avoid then what is clear. And so that's what we're going to do this morning, to stay focused on that which is clear. Verses 8 to 11. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea, for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og. The two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God of heaven above and on the earth below. Uh, what an incredible declaration. Here is Rahab. She doesn't have a Bible. She doesn't have a preacher. She's living in this Canaanite society that is so secular. And yet, look what she rehearses um, in verse 8 up there at the beginning. Before the spice lay down, she said, I know that the Lord has given you this land. Past tense, as though it has already happened. That is how much faith and confidence 
that she has in this God. And then look at her declaration at the very end there in verse 11. Our health melted because the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. All she had was the recounting of these travelers, these merchants that were passing through Jericho, perhaps others who were staying there recounting about this growing mass of people outside the walls across the river and the uh, exploits that that great God that they tout is accomplishing and it brought her to this faith in this God. Some of it may have been driven, her faith may have been driven because such disillusionment, her life of prostitution, the Canaanite culture, she saw the the temporalness, the uh, meaninglessness of it and was looking for something of more substance that would really truly satisfy her heart and soul. And so she expresses this faith. You know, uh, she didn't have a four-year degree in Bible college or seminary or whatever we think we, we got to have to take acts of faith that God wants to use. Don't do that to yourself to put that kind of expectation. Rahab is in the hero of faith. Uh, verses 12 to 20. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to me and my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death. See, we still see here that faith of Rahab that she believes this God can save her and her family. Our lives for your lives, the man assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she lent them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourself there three days until they return and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, this oath you made us swear will not bind will not be binding on us unless we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down and unless you have brought your father and mother your brothers and all your family into your house if any of them go outside your house into the street their blood will be on their own heads we will not be responsible As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Perhaps God's whole reason for sending the spies in was not the conquering of Jericho, As I rehearsed, the strategy was, uh, as Derek said, absurd, pretty open. But instead, the primary reason was to save Rahab, to save her family, 
See, think about all these people. Uh, the overarching theme throughout this By Faith series is that God demonstrates this incredible uh, uh, desire to save to what we call the great rescue, the ultimate great rescue of all humanity, but we see it pictured through all these scenarios. And so here, once again, God is driven to save Rahab because it's central to God's story. Particularly, Rahab is central to God's saving story. Rahab's name sits close to the middle of those listed in the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews 11. Almost right in the middle, we have the reading of those names. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. And then we have this Canaanite, this Gentile, Rahab, non-Jew, Rahab. And then following the list of Rahab, we have Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jepheth, David, Samuel, and the prophets. Rahab's name kind of sits in there, kind of like a sore thumb. Or at least how I look at it. And it's how I might think of her initially. But she sits there because she's a beacon. She particularly is drawing attention in a unique way. Most often in Scripture, when Rahab is mentioned, particularly in the New Testament, at least three times it's mentioned, it's done with this descriptive title, Rahab, the prostitute. The prostitute. It's like even after her conversion for our benefit, because as you know as well, often when a person comes to saving faith, their name may change. But here, at least for the writers of the Scriptures, they are directed to identify her as Rahab, the prostitute. And she's on the center stage. Because Rahab gives hope to the sinner. But it convicts people like you, uh, I'm sorry, it convicts people like me, possibly you, of a judgmentalism. How we look, size up people. A prostitute, anytime, whether in our culture, even though maybe it's changing, but certainly in Rahab's culture, was judged as the scum of the earth. They were looked down on. They were devalued, discredited. They were cheap, not esteemed. The Greek word here is pornea, which we get pornography. Not well thought of. God, you, you're making a mistake, God. This is Ed Sutter uh, dialoguing with uh, um, God, uh, thinking you're going to use Rahab. God, you're, you're, you're making a mistake. Don't you know what Rahab does? Uh, God, Rahab's a sore thumb. It's going to take away from you and your cause. But instead, God says, no, it's going to draw. It's going to point something out. Rahab gives us great hope. 
judgmentalism would have slammed the door shut on Rahab. No way. But thankfully, God does not operate within the confines of our judgmentalism. Instead, he wants to confront our judgmentalism by choosing to use somebody like Rahab, the prostitute. Rahab, the prostitute. And not only does he use uh, Rahab, the prostitute here, but she marries into the Jewish faith, uh, the Jewish clan. And she becomes part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. He wants to confront our judgmentalism by people that we would exclude, devalue, look down upon. If you are going to work on being less judgmental, you must do some interior work of the Spirit. It demands separating, making a judgment, which we must do. It's unavoidable. You must make judgments, wise judgments, discerning judgments, but not passing judgment. Making a judgment is how we do make decisions. Do I want to go to Burger King or to McDonald's? Bad example, I know. Do I want to watch a movie or a football game? We are constantly making judgments. We are constantly trying to get good information to make wise judgments. This is important. It's a part of our decision-making apparatus. The problem is when we judge people. Where we devalue people. Or think that we have a posture or a position where we can give them value or take away. Can you hear the voices of your judgmentalism? When you think of an LGBT advocate. How about an abortion provider? A liberal you fill in the blank. Can you differentiate? Because I think they're so entwined. We like to say, uh, 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 love the sinner but hate the sin. But I find, my experience, they're so intertwined, sometimes it's hard to hear the voices when they are um, conflicted within me. It's hard to discern, uh, to truly hate the sin but you still love the sinner. That's hard work. That takes the work of the uh, Spirit of God, I believe. You know, but that's exactly what uh, often conflict will do. Especially if you're going to reconcile. It's going to force you to do that work of identifying your own judgmentalism that maybe God wants to surrender for the sake of peace with that LGBT advocate that abortion provider or somebody even within your own family, your own biological family, let alone church family. 
While I wish conflict did not happen between the church and school, it has helped me to hear the voices of judgmentalism within me. It has brought greater clarity to the difference between making judgments and passing judgments. This is the good that can rise out of our conflict while we wish it had not happened, certainly. This is the good. If God is uh, rooting out a, a spirit of judgmentalism for a greater uh, love that he uh, desires a family to offer, this is a good thing. The good thing, if you move past conflict to reconciliation, everyone, even those on the sidelines watching, must examine their own hearts for this judgmentalism. You know, as I was preparing this week, um, and God was fine-tuning my ears to hear the voices of my own judgmentalism, I came across an editorial in my World Magazine, which I want to end by reading. Uh, World Magazine, it, it's a, a Christian magazine looking at news that I go to because uh, for some time there, there's just so much conflicted news that you're hearing and I, I try to go there to have it make a little bit of sense to me. And right when, you know, uh, like I said, several things converge just like this editorial as I was preparing, uh, uh, thinking about my attitude towards Rahab my attitude towards various folks conflicted around me, but even culturally. And so this editorial, the editor is Marvin Olosky, uh, uh, is entitled, What Might Have Been the Tragedy of George Floyd? So I'm going to read the uh, full length of it, and that will kind of bring me to uh, just a closing statement, and then we'll finish here. I tried to reply, this is the editor who's writing this column, I tried to reply cordially to every letter world mem members send me. During June, I briefly apologized 20 times to reprimands for a mistake I made, but with letter 21, the 21st letter, something broke and I responded at greater length. Thank you for the note. I was inaccurate to say George Floyd, by all accounts, was a gentle giant. Relatives, friends, and ABC, CBS, NBC, NPR, USA Today, etc. characterized him that way, but I should have said by almost all accounts. Some conservatives emphasize his repeated arrest in Houston, most involving less than an ounce of drugs and in a severe instance of armed robbery for which he rightly went to prison for four years. But I challenge your characterization of him as a thug. Floyd came out of prison in 2013 and by some accounts was a changed man over the next seven years. Does it matter that Floyd grew up in Houston's third ward in the Cooney Homes housing project where kids sang this version of a familiar jingle? I don't want to grow up. I'm a Cooney Homes kid. They got so many rats and roaches I can play with. Maybe not. Does it matter that he was more than six feet tall in middle school and didn't get much of an education except football and basketball? So when he wasn't good enough to go pro, he wasn't trained in anything? Maybe not. 
I don't know much about Third Ward life, but an old-timer did show me around there a few years back. A tough environment does not justify criminal activity. But maybe a person who grew up in one and messed up badly should get a second chance. Floyd, after prison, volunteered with Resurrection Houston Church, which held many services on Cooney Holmes' basketball court. Does it matter that he apparently set up chairs and a bathtub on the court for baptisms and went door-to-door with Pastor Perrick Waglow letting residents know about Bible studies and grocery deliveries? Maybe not. I don't know much about the Christian program that brought him to Minnesota, and he did have drugs in his system when arrested. Would he have done well? We don't know. Floyd died at age 46 when a police officer put his knee on Floyd's neck for almost nine minutes as other police officers watched. We could discuss what's gone wrong in some black communities, but here's what I want to get to. The story of David Pena, a 64-year-old who as a young man did drugs, committed crimes, and gained a three-year prison sentence. Pena got out, founded Texas Reach Outreach Ministries, and as a CEO of this organization for 30, 30 years, was God's servant to alcoholics, drug addicts, and former inmates. Texas Reach Out Ministry provides eight homes for men and three for women, along with employment assistance and spiritual guidance. I went to one of Pena's Bible studies in South Austin last year. A dozen men who had made recent professions of faith in Christ sat on couches and folding chairs. Some were only a few weeks out of prison. An ex-con with head knowledge tried to impress Pena, who gently explained what abstract concepts were insufficient. Walk counts more than talk. Pena explained from his own experience that only Christ works. He was terrific. David Pena died early in July from COVID-19. That's sad. What's tragic is that George Floyd might have, might have become a David Pena. We would never know. Thankfully, we know about Rahab. So make judgments. But be careful not to pass judgments. In the words of the serenity prayer, which I think mirrors scripture, God will make all things right in the end. Let's pray. Boy, God, um, you knew what you were doing when you selected Rahab. Because probably for a lot of us, we see it ourselves, we could say, well, at least I'm not Rahab. You know, 
God, I think a more appropriate title is not Rahab the prostitute. Rahab the courageous one. Rahab who withstood all the voices of her culture and the surrounding people. And she exercised faith. It wasn't uh, trying to make up for all the uh, illicit activities that uh, reflected her life to that point. Just simply faith in God. And she's released. God, give us discerning minds to hear our own voices when we are lapsing from just making wise judgment to make a decision to passing judgment on people. Knowing there are Rahabs, there are Pinyas, there are Ed Sutters in the crowd. Amen.